Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 13. It's been quite a while since we've been in the book of Acts, and we pick up here in Acts chapter 13 at the 13th verse. At this point in the book of Acts, we are in Paul's first missionary journey. And here he journeys to another Antioch, Antioch in Pisidia, and he is given the opportunity to preach. And as I read, you're going to hear how Paul's sermon divides into three parts. And every part focuses upon God's promise. And at every transition throughout his sermon, Paul pauses and expresses his great love to the people to whom he is preaching. We might think of Romans chapter 9 where the Apostle Paul says that he wished, this is a shocking statement, I still can't wrap my head around it, but he says he wished he could be accursed for the sake of his brothers, the Jews. Well, here he is in a synagogue having opportunity to preach to them, and you're going to hear in his language his heart's desire for these people to come and to know the faithfulness of God to his promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. Christ. Well, let us give our careful attention to the living and active word of God as we hear of God's faithfulness to his promise of salvation. This is the word of God. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13, reading through verse 43. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. 
And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Last weekend, Labor Day weekend, marked the beginning of another election season. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we have entered into that time in which potential presidential candidates will hit the campaign trail proclaiming promises intended to persuade you to cast a vote in their favor. We are entering that time of year in which we are going to be bombarded with a whole variety of promises. So keep this in mind. A promise is only as reliable as the one who makes it. A promise is only as reliable as the one who makes it. In 1916, only two years after World War I began, Woodrow Wilson ran for re-election, and he made a promise central to his campaign. His campaign slogan said, He kept us out of war. That slogan made an implied promise. He kept us out of war, therefore he will continue to keep us out of war. Well, only 34 days into his second term, Wilson signed a declaration of war against Germany. Only one month into office, and Wilson broke his primary promise. A promise is only as good as the one who makes it. There are entire books and websites dedicated now to capturing and recording all of the presidential campaign promises that have failed. Now, to be fair, 
Most presidential candidates make these promises, I believe, intending to keep them. But things change. Unforeseen circumstances come about. So even if certain candidates unintentionally broke their campaign promises, all of this serves to highlight the fact that there are limitations and inabilities inherent to promises that are made by mere men. Well, here in our text, the Apostle Paul is asked to preach in a synagogue where the word of God has just been read from the law and the prophets. And having that opportunity to preach, the Apostle Paul centers his sermon upon the promise of God. We have come to expect promises to be broken in our lives. If anything, campaign promises have conditioned us to expect promises to be broken which means we need to be especially careful when it comes to the promises of God because God's promises are absolutely unique. God's promises are unlike any other promises that you hear because God is not like a mere man running for office. No, God cannot lie. And he cannot deny himself. He is all-powerful and he is all-knowing. And above all, he is faithful to his promises. This morning we were called into worship from Hebrews 10. That passage called us to hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering. Why? Well, because he who promised is faithful. As we begin another presidential campaign season, we are going to be bombarded with many promises made by mere men. So it's good for us this morning to turn our attention to the promise of God. And I actually want you, as you hear promises made this campaign season, to learn, to form that holy habit of turning your attention away from the promises of mere men to reflect upon the promises of God. Any promise a mere man can make to you is at best shaky and uncertain. But the promises of God are unshakable because he cannot deny himself. So let's focus this morning upon the promise of God. Let's begin where Paul does, the promise preserved. Having been invited to bring this word of encouragement The Apostle Paul stands and he expresses his love and you can hear of his expectation for these, his fellow Jews, in his word of introduction. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Paul is eager that these, his brothers, would hear of the promise of God as it has been preserved and as it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Again, going back or going to Romans 9, there Paul tells us that he wishes he could be accursed for the sake of the faith of his brothers, wishing that they would come to know Jesus Christ. And you can imagine the Apostle Paul, given this opportunity to preach in a synagogue, his heart is full of joy and he is eager that these his brothers by the flesh would become his, his brothers in the Spirit. Now Paul is preaching to a congregation that is familiar with the Word of God. In fact, they have just read the law from, or read the word from the law and the prophets. And so Paul is addressing a group of people who is familiar with this history, which is why the Apostle Paul can jump right in. He jumps right in, summarizing how God has faithfully preserved his promise. 
God chose the patriarchs. He delivered their descendants from Egypt. He gave them the land of Canaan, and he chose David as their king. And throughout this rehearsal of Israel's history, Paul's words are almost taken directly from the Old Testament. Right up until verse 23, the entire congregation would have been eagerly nodding with enthusiasm. Then Paul skips the rest of Israel's history, and he jumps from David to David's descendant, to Jesus. And at this point in Paul's recounting, he is emphasizing God's faithfulness to preserve his promise down through the ages. All the way back in the beginning. All the way back in Genesis 3, some th- a couple thousand years or thousands of years earlier, God made a promise to provide salvation He promised a Savior who would come to crush the head of the serpent. And ever since that promise was given, the people of God have been known as those who are eagerly awaiting the promise. And so at this point in our text, Paul has recounted God's personal preservation of his promise. And in Paul's recounting of that promise preserved, he emphasizes two things. First of all, Paul emphasizes God's great Power. Listen again to the verbs that Paul uses to describe what God has been doing all along. He says, God chose our fathers. God made them, made the people great. God led them out of Egypt. God carried them in the wilderness. God destroyed nations before them. God gave the land of Canaan to them as an inheritance. God gave them Saul. God raised up David to be their king. And then finally, God brought to Israel Jesus, the Savior. What is Paul emphasizing? Well, he is emphasizing God's sovereign power to preserve his promise. Who did all of these things? God did. What did Israel do to secure all of these things? Well, nothing. Because God's infinite power stands behind his incredible promise. Already we can pause to appreciate what this means for us today. At this point, Paul is unpacking the history of God's promise preserved. So think about this promise preserved at this point when Paul is preaching. Thousands of years have transpired since that promise was first May. And Paul takes some time to recount all of Israel's history, the patriarchs, their slavery in Egypt, a long time in the wilderness, the promised land, the judges, the kings, and so on. All told, this was thousands of years, and at each point along the way, it would have been easy for Israel to doubt God's promise. At how many points did it seem as though maybe God had forgotten? At how many points could it have seemed from their circumstances like God's promise may have failed? What did God's promise look like to Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt? What did God's promise look like or how did it appear to Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years? What did God's promise look like to them when Israel compromised and took to themselves the idols of their neighboring nations? 
How about in the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes? How did God's promise appear? What did they think when they were carried away into exile in Assyria and later in Babylon? Generation after generation, this glorious promise of God's salvation was being passed down from people to people. But the passing of time and the changing of circumstances could easily work to erode their confidence in the promise of God. Well, here in our text, we hear Paul's account of the history of God's promise preserved. From our vantage point, from the word of God, we can look back and we can see God's powerful preservation of his promise. Despite the way things may have appeared at various points along the way, God was faithful. And this recounting of Israel's history is intended to strengthen our faith because we can look back and see God's power on display. We need to appreciate the fact that God's promise stands today because his power is behind his promise. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ came just as God had promised. Because of God's power, Paul could proclaim to these people that God brought to Israel a Savior just as he promised. But we need to rely upon the power of God behind his promise today. We know that Christ has come. We know that he has accomplished our salvation, but we are still clinging to a promise. And we are clinging to the promise of Christ's return. We are in a similar way to these people hearing Paul preach. They were there awaiting the first promise of Christ's coming. And we are sitting here today worshiping God, awaiting his return. Well, how long has it been since that promise was made? Months have turned into years and years into decades and decades into centuries and centuries into millennia. And changing circumstances and time could be used to erode our confidence in God's promise. Well, this recounting of God's faithfulness to preserve his promise is intended to strengthen our faith. A promise is only as reliable as the person who makes it. And we are intended to see here God standing powerfully behind his promise. Just as God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised, so too will Jesus return at the appointed time. This is one of the reasons why God's word ends with Jesus saying to us, surely I am coming quickly. And this is why God's word puts into our hearts those words, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. No matter your circumstances today, you can be confident that God's promise will not fail because God's power stands behind his promise. Well, second, Paul emphasizes God's grace. Throughout this recounting, God's grace is given a grand display. Simple words. Paul says, God chose the patriarchs. Simple words. uh, Paul recounts all of Israel's history. And all of that recounting of Israel's history emphasizes God's grace. How so? Well, just think through various parts of it. Why did God choose Abraham? 
Was it because he was seeking after God? No. When God called Abraham out, he was worshiping idols in Ur. Why did God choose Jacob? Well, Romans 9 is crystal clear that God chose Jacob instead of Esau, not by works or not because of works, but because of him who calls. We could think of David. You are all well aware of David's infamous sins of adultery and murder. Well, God still graciously sent the Savior through David, all because of God's glorious grace. The recounting of Israel's history emphasizes God's grace. The reason why the promise persevered was because God's grace stands behind his promise. And again, we need to pause and to appreciate what this means for us today. God is faithful to his promise, even when we are unfaithful. God's promise stands because of God's glorious grace. Listen, if God's promise were contingent upon you and me, upon our performance and our faithfulness, that promise would have failed long, long ago. But praise be to God that his promise stands because of God's grace. A promise is only as reliable as the person who makes it. Not only is God's power behind his promise, but his grace is behind his promise as well. Psalm 62 summarizes both of these really well, saying, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. The promise of God stands. The promise of God's salvation stands because God's power and his grace stands behind it. Well, that is the promise preserved. And in his sermon, Paul continues by declaring, second, the promise fulfilled. Again, at this point, Paul transitions a little bit and he reemphasizes his eagerness for these people to hear and to believe. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. He says, listen, the promise of God has been preserved by God's power and his grace, but it gets even better. That promise has been fulfilled. The promise has now been fulfilled. And when Paul explains how that promise has been fulfilled, he emphasizes again two things. He tells Israel here that when God came to his own, they rejected him. They didn't understand what was prophesied, behind, be, uh, prophesied about him. And because of that, they fulfilled everything that was prophesied about him. And they crucified him on the cross. Well, again, Paul's re- recounting of this promise fulfilled focuses our attention upon two aspects of God's promise. First, Paul highlights the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. How so? Well, in God's plan, in the unfolding of God's perfect plan, Christ came to his own people, and they did not receive him. Paul tells us that they didn't recognize him, and they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, which were read in their hearing every week. 
Because they didn't recognize Christ, nor these prophecies made about him, they actually then fulfilled those prophecies by condemning him to death and by asking Pilate to execute him. Paul emphasizes this, saying, even though they found him guilty of no wrong, they still had him executed, and when he died upon the cross, they took him down and laid him in a tomb. Why is Paul explaining it this way? Well, it is in order to highlight the great wisdom of God revealed at the cross of Jesus Christ. All of this highlights the incomprehensible wisdom of God. Think about what occurred at Calvary from a human perspective. Think about your standard Jew looking upon the events of the crucifixion from their perspective. The Messiah has come, but he has died upon the cross. This seems, from a human perspective, to be the worst of all possible outcomes. But then, in the incomprehensible wisdom of God, the cross, an instrument of execution, becomes precious to sinners. Because it is upon Calvary's cross that the Lord Jesus Christ paid the price for the sins of all his people. See the great wisdom of God. From a human perspective, this looked like the worst of all possible outcomes. But in the wisdom of God, it is actually the best. By the cross of Jesus Christ. God took what man intended for evil and God transformed it into the greatest good, the eternal blessing of his people and the eternal praise of his own name. We must not miss what Paul's point is here. The point that Paul is pressing home here is that even the most wicked men who are committed to carrying out their own will, they cannot impede God's promise. Because of the wisdom of God, he is actually going to take and transform all of the evil intentions of this world to bring about his promise, to glorify his name, and to do great good for his At the cross, we see the wisdom of God, and all of this should give to us the greatest of comfort. Because we live in a world which it is very easy to look around, and it seems as though things are going wrong. It looks like things are running out of control, but here we see that nothing can thwart the sovereign plan and purpose of God. Nothing. Not even that event in your life that seems to say things are out of control. No, God is going to use that too for your good. He promised to send a Savior and he brought it about according to his perfect plan. At the exact right moment in his wisdom. And so every time that you are tempted to get discouraged by what you see going on in this world around you. I want you to form the habit of turning away from those discouraging events to consider the wisdom of God revealed in the cross of Christ. Again, from a human perspective, the cross seems to be the worst of all possible outcomes. But what is it in reality? It is the best. 
This is how God does greatest good for his people and glorifies his name. And so we need to be able to look upon the events of the things in this world and we need to reinterpret them according to God's wisdom. We need to form that holy habit of saying, how is God going to use that to do good for his people and to glorify his name? The wisdom of God revealed at the cross transforms everything. Instead of looking around and getting discouraged, we can wonder with a holy imagination at what God is going to do to do good for his people and to glorify his name. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. And when we hear of God's promise of salvation, we need to see his wisdom revealed at the cross. His wisdom transforms everything. Now, second, Paul also highlights here God's satisfaction. He highlights God's satisfaction. And he highlights God's satisfaction in two ways. In his son and in the resurrection. When Paul is preaching about this fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation, he emphasizes the fact that this is God's son and that he has raised him from the dead. He quotes Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Why does Paul emphasize the fact that Jesus is God's son? Well, you parents in the room can appreciate this. What would it take for you to give up your child for anyone else? I had this poignantly pointed out to me two weeks ago when my youngest was in the hospital. And I held him there thinking, who would I give him up for? The answer was quickly, no one. No one. But here in the word of God, the Apostle Paul highlights the fact that God the Father gave up his only begotten Son to save sinners. So what does that mean? Well, it means that God has loved his people with a love that we cannot comprehend. It means that you ought not to ever doubt God's love for you because he put it on the grandest display when he had his own son crucified to save you. The Apostle Paul highlights this fact in Romans 8. He says, listen, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave up his son for you, he is satisfied in the work of his son on your behalf. And that is where Paul goes next. He says, listen, the Jews did not receive him. They demanded that he died. They had him crucified upon the cross. They buried him in the grave. And then Paul proclaims, but God raised him from the dead. Why is the resurrection so significant? It is so significant because by it, God publicly proclaims his complete satisfaction in the work of his son to save lost sinners. By way of the resurrection, God 
portrayed his satisfaction before the entire world, that his plan of salvation had reached its fulfillment, Christ had accomplished his will and satisfied the wrath of God for the sins of all of his people, Jesus came and he saved his people from their sins. So, every time you are tempted to doubt God's love for you, or the forgiveness of your sins. You need to form the habit to take your eyes off of yourself and to look upon God's Son. He gave up His Son for you. And then He raised Him from the dead to show everyone that He was satisfied with His finished work. A promise is only as reliable as the person who makes it. And Paul here highlights the wisdom of God standing behind the promise of God and the satisfaction of God now standing behind the promise of God. God made a promise and he fulfilled that promise. Which brings us finally to that promise proclaimed. What does all of this mean? Well, again, the Apostle Paul transitions because this promise needs to be appropriated. It needs to be laid hold of. And so he, again, and you hear his heart coming through for the people hearing him. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul is crystal clear. He'll later write these words in Romans 3. He says, For by works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The promise of God is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this promise of God is salvation given by way of this great exchange that Paul here highlights. He says, listen, by faith in Jesus Christ, your sins, your real and actual sins, the ones you remember, the ones that you don't, all of them were imputed to Jesus Christ, where he paid for them upon the cross. And then he turns our attention to Christ's righteousness, the demands of the law, and he says, look, Christ fulfilled on your behalf what you could not, and by faith in Jesus Christ, that righteousness is imputed to you. This is incredible. All of this is backed by the promise of God. The word of God is clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It means you have sinned, I have sinned, every single one of us, we have sinned against a holy God. And what that means is we deserve to endure an eternity's worth of wrath because of our sin. And it is appointed for man to die once and face judgment. That is what God's word says. It will happen to each of us, we just don't know when. But here we have this incredible word of promise. And this promise is as good as the one who stands behind it, the one who made it. 
The promise is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Or as Paul will later write in Romans 8, For God has done what the law could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. After making this grand proclamation, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, these things are promised to you, Paul adds a word of warning. He quotes Habakkuk 1.5, which in its original context warned Judah of an impending judgment that God would bring upon them because of their unrepentance. And Paul's implication is this, just as surely as God carried out that judgment, so too will he bring destruction on all who scoff at this gracious promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Well, what is Paul getting at? Well, he is getting at the fact that the promise of salvation offered in Jesus Christ must be appropriated. We must lay hold of it by faith. And how is it that it is appropriated? It is beautiful. Is it by what you do? It's but, or it's only by believing. That is what Paul says here. Through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Brothers and sisters, a promise is only as reliable as the person who makes it. Well, there is no promise as reliable as this promise. Because here God's word highlights who it is that stands behind the promise. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then this promise is sure. The word of God speaks of our salvation in the past, present, and future tense. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. How can the word of God speak with such confidence about these things? Because our salvation comes by way of God's promise. And so if you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And you have the very righteousness of God's own Son credited to your account. You have been perfectly and irrevocably reconciled to God. And so the only response then is to worship. The only response then is to praise the glorious name of of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Worship today. Worship today and rest in that sure promise of God, because it will not fail. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your word.
And we thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that promise made in the beginning, preserved throughout history and time, fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ and heading toward consummation. Lord, we thank you for this word before us today. We thank you for the fact that this promise is as sure as you are. We are so very thankful for your power and your grace, for your wisdom and your satisfaction for who you are as you stand behind your promise. Lord, we pray that as your people we might rejoice in these things, that we might today take a break from the trials and challenges of life in a fallen world, and we might just worship you. Lord, we pray that it will be your promise that revives us. We are going to sing here in a moment from your word that that is what your promise does. It revives the soul. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would drive these truths from simply being in our heads down all the way into our hearts so that we might be comforted by them. Lord, may we live our lives in this world as those who are at rest in a world that is striving because the promise of your salvation is secure, because the end is determined and fixed. We thank you for so great a salvation, and we praise your holy name as we pray this now in Christ. Amen. Let's turn together in our psalm books 